This is being recorded for NYU Wagner Review podcast series hosted by Wagner Health Network and Wagner International Student Society. I'm Han Marzuki. I am an MPA health uh, student at Wagner. My background, um, I'm from the UAE, Abu Dhabi and Precise. Um, and I was working for two and a half years at a private sector hospital in my country. And now I'm at Wagner in New York and interning at NYU Langone. Over to Kowlin, our first speaker. She is a second year MPA health student. And before joining Wagner full time, she worked as a medical officer in Nepal, which is her home country. As a medical officer, she facil facilitated communications between providers, um, the government and the private sector for relief funds to aid Nepalis after the tragic 2015 earthquake. Uh, this evening, she'll be taking us through Nepal's public health efforts on COVID-19. Thank you, Hanan. Um, so as Hanan said, I'll be talking about uh, Nepal's COVID-19 policy and preparedness plans. So just to give a brief overview of Nepal, um, Nepal is a country situated in the foot of the Himalayas between China and the north and India and the south with a total population of 29 million. Nepal's cross national income is uh, per capita is 2,260 US dollars and total expenditure on health per capita is 137 US dollars. Uh, Nepal is a low income economy and has nominal public health uh, professionals and specialists. Nepal has 0.17 physicians per thousand population and 0.51 nurses and midwives per hundred population. Um, Nepal's public health is still jit. The curative health service is of utmost priority of the government, comparative to promotive, preventive, protective and controlling health services. However, uh, they have been trying to focus and take special consideration and priority basis to the public health. But there are challenges um, that Nepal must face in terms of public health, as there are a lack of human resources, uh, paucity of adequate infrastructure, epidemiological alterations, climatic transitions. So the health management information system, HIMS, are also looking into successful public health outcomes based on the health education and promotion activities and programs. So um, addressing the current topic at hand, the first case um, of um, COVID-19 was first noted on January 23rd, 2020. Following this, there were no new cases that were identified until later March. So between the period of um, January and March, Nepal took, <clears throat> sorry, Nepal took steps to prevent the widespread outbreak of the disease. So um, what Nepal did was Nepal um, initiated a countrywide lockdown, which was strictly followed, and it was followed through June, except for a few months in the morning, the country was in complete shutdown and the only people allowed to mobilize um, were the essential care workers. So Nepal started uh, the public awareness programs and they also started procuring essential supplies, equipment, medicine, and started upgrading their healthcare facilities. Uh, and training medical personals. So there was a second lockdown following the whole month of August due to the increase in number of daily cases uh, due to a major factor being mobility of the population. This slide just shows how the lockdown was implemented geographically and in which sites there were complete lockdowns, partial lockdowns. So they were according to the regions um, 
where there were suspected caseloads uh, that would increase and where there are more vulnerable populations. So in order to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic, the government of Nepal, along with the Ministry of Health and Population, with the aid of NGOs and INGOs like WHO, UNICEF, they developed strategies. So on February 27, 2020, the government of Nepal established the Corona Crisis Management Centers to develop information systems um, and allocate human resources and other resources um, required to combat the crisis triggered by the coronavirus infection. So there was a network of five hub hospitals and several satellite hospitals that were mobilized. All hospitals in the network had developed disaster preparedness plans and mapped available resources and allocation of isolation spaces. So there were also isolation beds being provided at the hub hospitals, PPEs and PCRs were also introduced. And WHO team of field personals were deployed to all seven provinces to support provincial health directorates so that there would be a constant communication um, between the local government and the health cluster partners to discuss the issues and ways forward to strengthen the technical assistance to the government of Nepal for the COVID-19 response. Um, here it shows the current data um, as of today, September 17th, uh, where there are currently 16,241 uh, active cases and um, with four new deaths per day. So there was a period in Nepal when there were no new cases per days as well. However, the uplifting of the lockdown uh, led to a daily increase in um, cases. Initially, there were limited PCR available, but once the provisions were made, daily PCR tests were also done. So the policy and response plans that Nepal implemented was, was in accordance to the WHO. Um, among many of the causes, I'll be discussing five of them. So to start with um, the coordination, um, planning and monitoring, Nepal government established national and subnational level authorities. As Kathmandu is the core location where most healthcare is entertained, planning health provisions and facilities at all levels was important as different population at different regions were at risk, especially those at the southern border, which is shared with India. So there was risk analysis of the spread that was done due to migrant workers entering Nepal through India, uh, through our open borders, as well as migrant workers um, from the Middle East since they were sent back by their employers. So they were identified and they were identified as the vulnerable population and also the main source, main carriers. So um, the, according to the metrics and monitoring evaluation systems, they were set according to the norms of the WHO. Uh, later on, planning through involvement of the you know, private sector was considered since just the government system wasn't able to handle the enormity of the situation. So as mentioned earlier, um, Kathmandu is the center for health services and being the business hub of Nepal, the mobilization rate in Kathmandu is the largest, um, especially with people seeking medical attention. So the benefit that I thought brought by the government in terms of coordination and management was they decentralized. So the workload and the caseload at the hospital, at the capital was distributed among um, the provinces. This could be the reason for the low um, number of cases seen initially through July. Um, this also allowed an opportunity to upgrade our healthcare facilities in the rural areas, as well as better equipped um, other facilities um, in other hospitals. 
However, the drawback that I saw was though the government instantly tried to control the land borders and did the screening, the large influx of migrants entering Nepal through air and land made it very difficult to screen. And um, most of the and people were initially more focused on how to sustain their family as these populations were mostly the um, daily wage workers. So they didn't give priority to screening. And this way, many people were missed and weren't kept under isolation. Um, and the government, though, acted accordingly, but they failed to give directives and mention the point of lockdown and screening and overall clarity on the situation. So subsequently, the number of uh, cases started in to increase in the Tarai region. The second response plan was by conducting surveillance rapid response teams. Here, initiation of COVID-19 testing at government-affiliated hospitals were done. The private sectors were involved only after cases started increasing, which I see as one of the drawbacks as not involving the private sector on time, since it led to overwhelming and uh, burdening the government sector as the patient flow increased and led to cases being distributed even to the non-COVID hospitals, non-COVID-19 hospitals, which led to exposure. But the benefit that was seen was initially, um, uh, as there were COVID-19 designated hospitals, there were provisions for immediate testing and if required uh, to be directly sent to the quarantine sites. And of course, there was the upgrading of the um, health facilities. So uh, the next role was for infection prevention and control. They made PPEs available. There was public awareness and providing quarantine facilities. Uh, this led to community initiatives, led public awareness with concepts of social distancing and hygiene maintenance. But the drawback was as uh, Nepal is a landlocked country and highly depends on other countries for their supplies. Same goes with the medical equipment, technical resources. So there was initially a shortage of face marks and PPEs. And then so Nepal started to domestically produce and the cost was very high. So due to this, many people weren't able to get tested. Similarly, in the case management as well, uh, they did it through the COVID-19 designated hospitals. Initially, there were five, currently there's 20. So the uh, cases were managed only in the de designated hospitals. This allowed less spread and it was possible for case controlled isolation as it didn't disseminate. And the implementation of case management protocol led to proper following and management of cases. However, even with the protocol, um, as, uh, the case, as there was increased patient flow occurred, even while trying to activate referrals and safe uh, patient transport mechanism into the higher healthcare facilities. The mis mix of patient led to exposure risk. So most sub-center hospitals outside of Kathmandu had to refer patients to Kathmandu due to the unavailability of beds. And thus during the transfer of patients and mobility, Kathmandu became the hotspot for cases. And lastly, I'd like to talk about the operational support and logistics. So while preparing for the procurement of medical and non-medical supplies, as well as starting the public awareness initiatives that were, um, uh, there were also donation mediums being formed and the prime minister fund, like the prime minister fund and public private sectors were also uh, contributing and insurance policies were initiated. There were, so um, yeah, to especially to the severely affected so, um, but the drawback was, <clears throat> sorry, though uh, the treatment was initiated instantly among the, co the designated hospitals, once there was an overflow, the government only weren't able to handle 
And by the time the private sectors were involved, the number of cases had, is, had increased. So as, a, as I mentioned earlier, initially there was a struggle for materials and procuring raw materials, but the benefit was Nepal learned to self-sustain to a degree. Um, lastly, I would like to just add, um, uh, similarly as, as in most countries, the concept of telemedicine was there, but it only rose to the extent that it, after the pandemic, and the same goes with Nepal as well, there were initially only a few telemedicine providers. Um, so with the policy implementing social distancing and lockdown, many patients received consults to the phone and other communication mediums and were made aware of the benefits of telemedicine and its easy, convenient access. There were also rise for homeopathic medications for the immunity boosters that were locally produced and sold. And, um, but to prevent the pandemic, the policies that were severely faced hampered our, our tourism, especially since this year is um, Nepal 2020, Visit Nepal 2020 tourism year. And though the policies needed to be placed, it has severely impacted our economy and to an extent the education system as well. Um, uh, and sorry, so lastly, to conclude, um, Overall, I would say Nepal has tried to contain the spread, even with the limited resources, but the possibility of flattening the curve still remains um, a challenge with the current situations. Um, and hopefully the health sector will take um, account current events to reduce the burden of COVID-19 in Nepal. Thank you. Thanks, Kaolin. That was... Um very informative and honestly i i personally had no idea what nepal um was going through and had done um in response to covid 19. um so just as a summary to your presentation i know that nepal or it seems that nepal had some challenges implementing its five uh components to the response plan as you had mentioned um and um, in terms of uh, what caused that? I think it was a difficulty to liaise with hospitals. Is that correct with the providers in Nepal? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that caused the cases to you know, in increase in number. Um, so we're just gonna give a few minutes for questions to come in. I'm just gonna ask you if that's okay. Sure. So, <laughs> Was the response plan that you discussed only created specifically because of COVID-19 or was this an existing risk management plan for other types of pandemics and emergencies? Um, I think it was uh, just as uh, made for initially developed because previously I don't think Nepal ever took that into consideration either, but though they do look into preventive measures, um, the amount of like diseases that they look into are not this fast. So I think um, they, they just learned from the other countries as well. And they sort of implemented uh, most of the things were internationally aided as well. Um, and most was also by the, from the influence of India as well. So yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's another question that came through as well, if you don't mind me asking. Where the COVID-19 designated hospitals well spread out around the country or were they focused on high outbreak regions? So as far as I know, 
initially, they were um, more focused on the high risk areas like the Terai region. And then slowly, since the uh, cases started uh, increasing and they wanted to like sort of, um, they knew people would come into Kathmandu because we have the better, because Kathmandu has the better health services. So they slowly started into the main cities um, following Chitwan, um, Dharan, and then Kathmandu. So they started, and then they started bringing it into like the, um, above the Tarai region, sorry. And how close are those regions and cities to Kathmandu? Are they like accessible? Um, some of them are within like two hours drive. Some of them are eight hours. So it's, it just depends because the Tarai between like there's mostly just how I said it was, um, the most cases were from India. So there's this whole stretch that lies between the Nepal and Indian border. So yeah. It doesn't, it wasn't just like focusing on Kathmandu, but then, so there's Taran, it was one, right now Taran is one of the government hospitals. And so now the cases in Taran is increasing as rapidly as Kathmandu. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, it's like the year is like towards the end and the cases are still increasing. Thank you so much, Kowlin. Um, to the attendees, if you have any more questions to Kowlin, you can keep them coming. Uh, we will answer um, or we'll, we'll have a Q&A session um, after all of us have uh, done with their presentations. Um, thank you so much again, Kellen. Uh, Amaka will go next. Um, our second speaker is Amaka Ojako, who is also a second year MPA health student. She is a lawyer, an avid advocate for health equity, and has diverse experience across multiple sectors. Tonight, Amaka will be discussing Nigeria's COVID-19 response and in particular, the role of the private sector. So good evening, everybody. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity, uh, Wagner Health Network and the International Student Society for this opportunity to share about the policy response um, of Nigeria to COVID-19. I'll give you a little bit of context and background about the Nigerian health care sector before this whole issue started. I'll put you through some of the policy responses that we had. I'll give you an idea as to what it means, what I see happening and possible projections with regards to private sector engagement. And I'll give a little bit of my own opinion on how this translates to policymakers and some of us who are interested in the policy space. I hope you guys listen and learn something. So first of all, my country is very colorful and bright as you can see. We have different ethnic groups. We actually have three main ethnic groups, the Igbos, the Yorubas and the Hausas. But we have, apart from that, we have over 200 other ethnic groups. And despite our differences in terms of language, culture, dressing, one thing that binds all of us together is football. We call it football, but I think some people call it soccer. When it comes to football, we drop all our differences. Our diversity is interesting and is important to this discussion as it relates to the responses. There had to be some adjustments to reflect the different regions in, with the government's response. But we're over 200 million. Um, our life expectancy is low at 55, 56, depending on your gender. And the total expenditure on health and public spending is quite low. And when you look at our map, you will notice that Lagos is very close to the Atlantic Ocean. We have our federal capital territory. 
This would become important when you look at the progression of COVID-19. Some areas were hot spots and some areas were not. Um, just a little bit background so you understand the situation that we found ourselves in. Where we are colonized by the British and prior to colonization, our means of treating sicknesses is native, using native medicines like plants, organic means of treating. So when um, the British came in, they came in with Western medicine and in a bid to convince Nigerians to make use of Western medicine, health services were practically subsidized or free. And as a result of that, as Nigeria progressed and gained their independence, most of the health services were in the public sector. But with the rot of the public sector came issues in the public health space and healthcare provider space. As a result of inadequate public health spending, there became a proliferation of private healthcare providers, a lot of private hospitals, and a lot of people pay out of pocket. What does this mean? If I go to a hospital in Nigeria, except I'm under the social health insurance scheme, created, I, have to pay, I have to pay out of my pocket before I am treated. And as a result of that, the middle class and those who can afford healthcare would rather travel out to other countries like um, India, America, Dubai, other places to receive what they consider to be quality healthcare. Even when those services are provided in Nigeria, it's all an issue of perception. And as a result of that, a lot of health workers are leaving the country in mass to those other countries for what they consider to be a better life. And as a result of that, the ratio of doctors to patients in Nigeria is quite low. As of today, this is the number of cases we have in Nigeria. We have over 56, we have about 56,604 cases, but consider it against our population. We are over 200 million. The number of discharge cases, number of deaths, we have about 85% recovery. And while a lot of people have a lot of discussions as to why this might be the case, some people say it's because of our climate, some people say it's because of the young population, some people say it's because of some genetic composition or maybe because we're already exposed to some version of COVID-19, nobody really has the answers. But I will give you a little bit of an inkling as to why maybe this might be the case. I equally don't have the answers, but just maybe an inkling. I'll show you, remember the first, um, the slide where I showed you um, the map of Nigeria. Some, some states are very close to the Atlantic Ocean and then the FCT. You will notice that three states seem to be on a very high side. Lagos, FCT, and one on the state under Kano. Kano moved. And that's because in those areas, there's a high rate of industrialization. We have the international airport, we have seaports, and a lot of people, it's very concentrated. If you can think about um, New York during rush hour, that's how Lagos is practically almost all the time. So there are always a lot whenever there are disease outbreaks. So when it was declared that COVID-19 was a public health emergency of international concern. Before I even came to Nigeria, there, there were already um, actions, strategic committee, committees set in place to begin to plan towards it. So when the first case came into Nigeria in February 27, 2020, through a traveler who was coming in through Lagos airport, 
and he went to Ogun State. So that shows you the progression of how it kept on moving. Nigerian government knew they could not take a chance because our healthcare delivery system would not be able to withstand it. So they, it was more or less like taking action before it gets too bad. So there was an, a mandatory lockdown imposed on those hotspots first, which was Lagos and FCT and Ogun State. And then subsequently, this lockdown was extended to other states. And because of our diversity, which is what I mentioned earlier on, there was a communication and awareness campaign in different languages, trying to explain to people what the situation was and what they should look out for, how to wash their hands and all of that. And then palliatives were put in place for those people who go out daily for their means of income. Now, whether or not this was equitably distributed is not a subject for discussion. I really don't know, but there are a lot of issues about that. Then going further, the policy responses, because this also came with like an economic crunch because the major source of income in Nigeria is oil, crude oil. There was a drop in prices. There are other, other areas, other sectors we get money, but mostly from crude oil. There had to be a reduction in capital and recurrent expenditure, and they had to cut out some of the non-essential items. While this is sad, it's kind of good in a way because one of the issues that has been on the front line in Nigeria is reducing the cost of governance. So I'm hoping that this might lead to achieving that one way or the other because by the time you realize that why do we need all those convoys if we could cut it down during COVID-19 then why do we need it after COVID-19? I hope this brings up questions like that. So somehow health policy is transitioning to other policies and laws. And then the Central Bank of Nigeria created a 50 billion Naira credit facility which is about 131 million. This might not seem like so much to you but I will explain why it means so much to us. And this credit facility was for small and medium enterprises because a huge bulk of the businesses in Nigeria are small and medium enterprises. And healthcare merchants were included in this provision. And the part I'm excited about was they created another funding for the healthcare industry, which is 100 billion, that's roughly 160 million for credit support channeled and designated for pharmaceutical industries to encourage local production of PPEs and other medical equipment and also to improve, improve access to credit facilities for health providers. If you could recall, I said a huge percentage of Nigerians go to private healthcare providers to seek care. So it was more or less like, let's prepare them and make them up to standard so that they can be able to handle cases when they come up. And then they had to amend, for some reason, we are using the Quarantine Act of 1926. As a result of this, they had to amend it to an infectious um, disease bill, but that infectious disease bill is currently controversial and going, undergoing some cases, is, is, is currently undergoing the stage of consultation because a lot of people raise um, concerns about human rights infringement, and that's good. I was excited about that because it means that more lawyers are beginning to pay attention to health sector issues. Uh, now, going back to the funding, it might seem small in dollars, but you need to understand that notwithstanding the commitment that the Nigerian government has made to increase public health spending, by, as a result of the Abuja Declaration made in 2000, which says that member states of the African Union would commit not less than 15% of their budget to health, Nigeria only commits 
about 3% or less. And that means nothing for a population of, 100 and, of over 200 million. So last year, last year there are about, or between 2018 there are about, a coalition of the private sector in health, government officials, the Ministry of Health, and non-governmental organizations, both international and local, came together and formed a coalition where they demanded that there should be a sustainable means of income called the Basic Healthcare Provision Fund to ensure that primary healthcare centers are taken care of as, and stuff like that. And they succeeded. So that shows you that COVID-19 is not necessarily the reason why there's some sort of activity. There has been a little bit of push here and there, but I will tell you why I'm excited. Prior to this, there has been so much agitation as to whether we should move from looking at health as a social good to a business. And if you recall, our history was that health was given free or at a subsidized rate. So people cannot relate to why it should be a business. But they always make a case with the telecommunication sector. Previously in Nigeria, some years back, maybe as at 2000, before you could make a call, it would take you probably two weeks to stand on a line with the public, with the government designated phone call lines. But then when it was privatized, almost every Nigerian has a phone, regardless of where they stay, whether they stay in the rural areas or the urban areas. So people are always trying to make this case that we should consider looking at health as a business rather than a social good. Now I have my reservations about that. I'll give you what I think and what I don't think, what I agree with and what I don't agree with. I would say that in recent years, there's been a lot of involvement like from social enterprises, technology, bringing up innovations, and private public partnerships to improve the quality of healthcare delivery systems, and a, a lot of work done by communication bodies and nonprofits to agitate the government to prioritize healthcare. So, the way I look at it is if we can trap those monies that we spend on medical tourism, reclaim it boost up our private health sector such that the middle class and those who, who can afford to pay for this healthcare delivery would stay within Nigeria. It would help to revert the monies we're losing. That money can be used to strengthen our system. And it would also be used as an incentive to motivate healthcare workers to stay back rather than leaving. And then for those who cannot afford healthcare, there should be something like a safety basket, a safety net, state health insurance, some kind of subsidy or something to make sure that those people are taken care of. So there should be some sort of balance. That's what I think. And then what I said is really, really exciting is during COVID-19, the private sector engagement here wasn't just from nonprofit organizations that have healthcare missions. It was businesses, people that never really cared about health before, people who never really understood the situation. So we're talking about banks, we're talking about random institutions coming up, companies, manufacturing companies coming up and saying, oh, I'll build an isolation center. Oh, I'll take care of hand washing stations. Oh, I'll do this, I'll boost up production. That's really exciting to me because it means that people are beginning to realize that there's a connection between health and economy. If your workers are healthy, then you have more productive workers when you have more productive workers, you have a more buoyant econ economy. But then the way they are looking at it currently is that they are looking at it as philanthropy. They are looking at, at it as corporate social responsibility. 
we need to create a shift from that to making it ingrained in companies' cultures to make health part of their program. That way, we can transition to sustainable financing from private sector. That's the way I look at it. And the things I feel were done right was we had very strong leadership. We have a center for disease control in Nigeria and the person in charge of it some years even before COVID-19 started was already putting things in place, having a legal framework, building capacity, ensuring that things were in place and that really helped us. Dot door testing and then still working on improving capacity because because they improved capacity, we were able to produce the first genomic sequencing for coronavirus in Africa. Okay, so the gaps that I can identify in all this is, although, you know, there's an excitement now and everybody's excited, but we still need to address the ground root issues like primary healthcare centers. There needs to be increased investment. We cannot rely on donor funding to strengthen our health system. So there has to be sustainable financing for the health system to ensure that we keep our talents and that we, we encourage Nigerians to get their healthcare in Nigeria. What are the transferable strategies? I think one of the things that Nigeria did as well as Africa, because Nigeria is part of Africa, is we had a concerted response strategy to COVID-19. All the different ministries worked together. Once Africa at the continental level, when they heard about the issue, they already had an Africa continental COVID strategy in place, communication, solidarity. They even created a procurement platform to address the issue of lack of access to medical supplies. Um, it's called the Africa Medical Supplies Platform. If you want more information on that, I actually wrote an article on that recently and I'll give you a link to it later if you're interested. What are the policy um, issues we can learn from this? As I said, initially, before I started this program, um, as a lawyer, I was thinking the way to address these issues is to push for political commitment create a hot seat for them, make government uncomfortable. And why that might be true is not totally correct. This is necessary and very important because there's a difference between countries who see health as a political choice and push for it and countries that do not like, for instance, Nordish countries. But my realization is from one of the courses that we took classes we took in Introduction to Public Policy about the issue attention cycle is that as policymakers, you have to be very sensitive to the mood, the policy mood. There will come a time when people realize that there's an issue, they get excited. But if you don't hinge on or clash, if you don't hinge on to the, mom, to the current momentum that is there, you lose it and then you go back to square one. And that explains why Nigeria has experienced, experienced issues like um, Ebola, Lassa fever, but once it leaves, everybody relaxes till the next one comes. So as policymakers, we have to be very sensitive to policy moves, to know when to push and advocate for things. So if, if the private sector and the public sector in Nigeria, if they are sensitive to policy issues, I feel this is the best time for them to push for everything they need to do because the borders are closed. 
So the haves, the very rich ones cannot travel abroad for treatment. Everybody is stuck. We all die here. So if there's any time that is right for them to push for things to be done, it's definitely now. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. But the most, imp most important thing is that Nigeria is a country with rich culture, beautiful people, nice food, wonderful music. So I, I would encourage you to explore more about Nigeria. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amaka. You got me excited to visit Nigeria, hopefully after everything, you know, is calmer and we can actually get back to traveling internationally. But I found it very interesting uh, that you mentioned that there was or there has been a kind of tension or a clash between the public and the private sectors when it comes to how healthcare is viewed and what healthcare is like in Nigeria. I would actually like to hear more about what you think is this like a, a reform a policy that you think will be an issue or do you think that this reform would actually cause um you know maybe now it would be a good thing but then maybe later they might find out that it was not a good step or direction in healthcare but there is a question i see in the q a and would love to hear your thoughts okay, on it Okay, I'll start first by responding to what you said. I'm very happy you mentioned that because when I was preparing for this, I actually reflected on this. It's funny how policy, when you make policies for different sectors and you make a mistake, you have the privilege to retrace your steps. But mm -hmm. when it comes to policy issues that deal with human life, once a life is lost, you can't retrace your steps. And that's why people have to be very sensitive when making policies that relate to health and human life. Now, this is not an issue of making another law, making another policy, giving another declaration, giving us another commitment. We have gone beyond that. Every person in Nigeria, both those who are policy inclined and those who are not, have a grasp of the issues. We have laws in place. We have legislations, beautifully crafted ones for that matter. What is needed is the push. This is the push we need. COVID-19 is the push because now mm. there is no demarcation between the poor and the rich. Everybody is now leveled up. Mm. These, are the, these are the facilities you should have taken care of years ago. You didn't. And now you have to use it. So I'm hoping that this situation creates an environment where they begin to think, you know what, let's make, let's strengthen our own systems. Let's use our own systems. Let's keep our own doctors and nurses and our health workers. Let's create an enabling environment for them to thrive. I'm not necessarily saying it should become a business, but let's create an environment where we can trap the monies we're losing to medical tourism and then create a safety basket for those who cannot afford it. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I asked you is because we've seen that when you make healthcare a business, there are certain repercussions and like exactly. things that happen that maybe are against what we think of healthcare and what exactly. the purpose of the healthcare industry is. Yeah, um, because, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, because it's being done in, in countries that are considered developed doesn't mean it will work in other countries. Every country has to look inward and find a unique solution to its own problems. That's what I that's think. A great, that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the uh, questions I have here is um, what I consider to be person wants my, my opinion on what I consider to be the main weakness that is leading to implementation gaps that mm -hmm. have been experienced during this pandemic period. 
Um, I would say that, in my opinion, I've never seen a time when Nigerians were so aware and pushing back as this time. You know, previously, I would say this, Nigerians are happy people, but when the government is not doing what they're supposed to do, they will just find a way. They don't complain, they will find a way. If you don't give us water, we'll find our water. If you don't create roads for us, we'll build our roads. But during this period, people were pushing. They were pushing. Where are the palliatives you asked for? What's the law you made? Why would it infringe on our human rights? I'm excited about that because people are beginning to question things. Why are you doing this? Oh, you said you, you got, you got um, so, 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 so funding from World Bank. What are you using the money for? How much is mm -hmm. going to health? We want to see the numbers. And that's a great thing. So for me, the biggest implementation gap is that push, having people that are aware of their rights, aware of the programs, aware of the monies, and demanding for accountability and transparency. It's not an issue of having policies. As I said, we have a lot of policies. Is that push, having people say, no, we, won't, we don't want that. No, we want this. And I think that's what's happening. I hope that this space continues even beyond COVID-19. And then someone asked a question about what areas of private-public partnerships do you think could be done to advance the public health in Nigeria? Now, I have seen a lot of PPPs, that's private-public partnerships, that were basically directed to, to improving the quality of hospitals. But I always say this, the health system is made up of several components. Healthcare is just a part. And healthcare is just a minute part of the entire picture. We're looking at issues like social determinants of health. There are so many illnesses, disease burdens that are caused by not just doing small things like clean water, sanitation. So I would, I would, I would be excited to see private-public partnerships that are channeled towards addressing social determinants of health because there are some issues that don't need to get to the hospital if they are addressed at the local, at, at the rudimentary stage, something as simple as clean water. And I've seen a lot of interesting partnerships with regards to testing, interesting partnerships with regards to uh, the old. I even saw one recently, there's a Nigerian bottling company that partnered with another agency to provide people with clean water. I want to see stuff like that. And that's why I'm excited with the way they're engaging. We're seeing non-traditional companies that had no interest whatsoever in health stepping in. So it's an issue of mapping out a plan to sustain that momentum. That's, that's the way forward now. That's awesome. And I, I'm really happy to see that you are kind of eager and positive in terms of the direction of the industry and healthcare in Nigeria, because a lot of people, you know, with the pandemic hitting globally, everyone is like, oh my God, we're going insane and yeah. everything is crashing down and we, we are so not hopeful for the future, but it's refreshing to see that you are. And I'm also excited to hear from Ruby, who's going next. Uh, <laughs> Thank you guys so China. much. Thanks, Amaka, so much. Um, on China's efforts and what has been going on there since the pandemic hit. Our third speaker is Ruby Wang, who's also a second year MPA health student. Uh, she served as a research assistant in public health programs relating to youth, 
epidemic responses, and chronic illnesses. Tonight, she will be speaking on China's response to COVID-19 and the unique measures that the country has taken so far. So Ruby, take it away. Um, thank you, Hanan, and uh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to share um, some of China's COVID-19 health policy and responses, which I find especially helpful um, to combat this crisis. So I will start with some statistics. Um, China has overall uh, 90,000 confirmed cases and 4,700 um, deaths. From the map, we can see that most of those cases happened in Hubei province, where the city Wuhan is located. Uh, both recorded high for confirmed cases and death appear in February. As of for last month, there are uh, 812 new cases and 33 new deaths. So um, the pandemic is not over yet. We are still working on it to get those numbers down to zero. The first response I'm going to talk about, same as what um, happened in other countries, is the lockdown. The lockdown happened in Wuhan in January 23rd, and within the next two weeks, other cities start the lockdown as well. Maybe not as strict as um, they did in Wuhan, but uh, transmission were cut. Um, long distance public transportations like um, long distance bus were stopped. The time-wise, it happened in the middle of a national holiday. We were we were having Chinese New Year, so the workers are already back to home, and students are not at school anymore. So that makes the lockdown easier to proceed. And since the after the lockdown, Wuhan has significantly more cases than other areas in China, medical staff go to where patients are. Um, medical staff includes researchers, doctors, nurses, and specialists in all departments, basically. They help not only to um, the treatments, with patients in hospital, as well as the nucleic as a test, which we will discuss later. Um, another response I find extremely helpful is the Fengsang Shelter Hospital. It refers to the kind of makeshift hospitals that are originally used for um, emergency medical care, such as the rescue after an earthquake. Um, for Fengsang hospitals in Wuhan, they were transformed from large public facilities such as sports stadia and um, exhibition centers that are originally designed for um, large capacities. Um, Fengsang hospitals admitted patients with mild to moderate symptoms. Patients usually stay there for 7 to 14 days. Um, they will be given tests, they will be taken care of. And after seven to 14 days, if um, all the test results are fine and um, symptoms are gone, they can return to home and continue their self-quarantine. And if the situation gets more severe, um, they will be referred to um, designated hospitals, to ICUs and um, receive care they need. In Wuhan, there are in total 16 Fengsang hospitals built admitted and treated over 12,000 patients. Fengsang Shelter Hospitals plays an essential role in combating this crisis because when people are um, simply sent home for self-quarantine, 
it is almost impossible for them to keep social distance with their family members since they share the house. So like what we see in um, some other countries when one uh, virus carrier return home or asymptomatic carriers come went home and after a few days, the whole household become infected. So uh, with Fengzhang hospitals, it, re it really reduced the household and community transmission. Another thing is um, patients really turn from mild to moderate to severe and critical within a very short amount of time. And um, they, may, they may not even notice it themselves. So when they're doing self-quarantine at home, by the time they feel not right and call ambulance, go to hospital, they may have already missed the optimized timing. And when they're in Fengzhang Hospital, they will, um, their test results will be viewed by medical staff. And um, if something's wrong, they will be referred to hospital and receive care very soon. To keep all the um, suspected cases, in one place is also a very effective way to monitor close contact and further cut transmission. Fengzhong Hospital also serve as a mediator between home and um, regular hospital that makes SU beds available to severe and critical patients who really need care. And it also reduced the uh, public panic so people won't just rush to a hospital and require service. So it actually reduced the workload for medical stuff. At later stage, like around um, the middle of May to the beginning of June, the curve has flattened and um, there are not many new cases. So Wuhan did a citywide uh, nucleic acid test to further reduce the new cases to um, detect confirmed cases. So the sampling booths were set in neighborhoods mm -hmm. and uh, medical staff also do door-to-door -door visit for um, elderly and disabled residents to get tested. They also do environment tests for um, public facilities like park or supermarket, um, public transportation, bus, taxis, and drinking water. All the test results for environment tests are negative. Um, since Wuhan is a major city in China with a large population, it's, it's a main challenge to get through like massive amount of samples within a very short amount of time. So what Wuhan did was called poll testing. Basically five to 10 samples are pulled in one tube for test. And if it's negative, then all of them are fine. And if the poll test result is positive, then we need to test individual tubes for, um, to find out like which sample is responsible for the positive result. Um, yeah, just remember this is at later stage and where there are very few new cases, very few confirmed cases. So um, this is very effective to help us get to cover all the samples. I think we covered um, over 10 million samples within 10 days. Last but not least, for contact tracing, uh, we have health cold. This is not only in Wuhan, but, in, but also like in other areas in China. The health code is basically a colored QR code to indicate the health status um, if based on the test result and daily screener, you are considered um, healthy, then your code will be green. And depending on where you have been and who you have physically been close nearby, your code may turn yellow or red, and that means you're required to take self-isolation. The health code can be accessed through popular wallet 
uh, wallet apps like WeChat Pay or Alipay. The advantage is that this is a dynamic code that changes automatically. So it's not only uh, information to show others how the code holder health status is, it's also an indicator to the code holder themselves. Like um, if they're not aware of um, where they have been and um, if they are like they're in danger, they should take self-quarantine. This is a very good indicator. The drawback, of course, that um, it requires facility. It requires smartphone and high-speed internet. Um, this is also why it has been proved to be more effective in large cities compared to rural areas. Some reflection on China's response, as well as um, echoing something, um, something Kelling and Emaka have said. This COVID-19 happened in a sudden and it, and it spread quickly, which shed light on the importance of multi-sector collaboration. And um, a main challenge for all of us is that we're lack of information for this disease, we're lack of study. So something for policymakers to think about moving forward is how to make optimal decisions when facing unknown infectious and epidemic diseases. That's it for my presentation and thank you. Wow, thanks so much, Ruby. Um, I have to say, like hearing and listening to your presentation, definitely I can tell that the, the response that China had um, and the measures that it took were far, I think, more vast than maybe some other countries um, and even like really big countries that are developed. And one of the things that I was um, thinking about as you were talking um, in terms of the QR code and how much facilities that are required, um, I would assume that this took a lot of, um, you know, economic toll on, on the country or on China. Um, do you think that because of that, it would be hard to kind of uh, replicate this in other countries and other regions? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, as I said, it is accessed through the FinTech apps that we already have. WeChat Pay and Alipay already covers uh, like a majority population in China. So um, yes, in, in terms of tech, technology um, feasibility, I think this is what we have an advantage than like other countries. Um, but um, the QR code can also be used like not dynamic, but static um, in like printout form. It won't work as efficient and effective, but um, that's how it's work in with people without smartphones. So maybe that's something that can be transferable in other country. Really, really interesting. Um, I can see a question from Hyun Ru um, in the chat box. It's perhaps around the same thing that I just asked, but it's more focused on policies. Mm -hmm. um, would you like to answer that question? Sure. Um, like, like we what we discussed, maybe the health code is um, have some like um, technical feasibility issues in other country, but I think the poll testing is definitely some strategies that other um, governments can consider in um, low risk regions to cover um, more people in the test and to further detect who are the uh, like confirmed cases or asymptomatic carriers and to reduce the new case numbers. 
Um, there's another question that came through. Uh, does that mean that they would automatically be traced whether they want to or not, as long as they have WeChat and Alipay? This is um, to do with the QR uh, section of your presentation. Um, yeah, I should be more specific how that works. So um, basically, when when you first enter a city, um, you you have to apply to one to a QR code initial initial QR code. It's like what we have for um, NYU Daily Screener. You answer questions in questionnaire, and um, if you haven't been to some high risk regions and you don't have the um, don't have the symptoms and your body temperature is fine, then your code will be green. And then every time when you enter um, public facilities like um, bank or supermarket, then you have to scan their code, like scan the code at that location and your health code will pop up to indicate that uh, um, I'm okay to move around or I can't enter the facility. And then um, the, the security will check if it's okay, then you can enter. And that also leave a record that you have been to that facility. And if someone else in who has also been to the location have been detected as a um, confirmed case, and then your code may turn yellow or red since you you are considered like physically near uh, near a um, confirmed case, and that's how the code will change. Very interesting. Uh, we have a question again about the code as well. How does the health code work for people without smartphones? I think this is actually a pretty important question um yeah. and i was intrigued by it too yeah yes um so for um like elderly or um people or other people like without smartphone first of all it can be applied by someone who has a smartphone for example elder um seniors can have their um their children apply it for them if they're going out together that's totally fine to to pull out to cold within like one smartphone and also it can be applied in the um, residential committee committee. That's a, a committee in every residential block. It can be applied and um, the code will be linked with your um, ID card. And every time you just have to show your ID card and um, the um, or or you can print out the like um, static QR code and the security can scan your code and the updated data will pop up on the like security end. Does it make sense? Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is news to me as well that every residential um, area has like a committee that kind of oversees people or rather residents that live there. That's pretty yeah. interesting. Um, thanks so much, Ruby. And thank you for providing a reflection as well. This is, uh, this was very informative. It was very interesting. I mean, all of you had such um, informative and amazing presentations. Um, we have five minutes, five-ish minutes, maybe 10, if people are okay with staying on a little longer for an open Q&A um, session. I believe there was one for Kowlin um, that was asked during your presentation, but we didn't get to it. Um, I'm going to ask it now since you agreed to answer it. So with the lockdown in Nepal, were there cases of missed vaccinations and treatments for children, especially in marginalized areas? And how did Nepal deal with children missing vaccinations? Um, did that cause them to be susceptible to other diseases as well? 
Um, yeah, so as far as I know, um, the medical support for Nepal weren't as hampered because um, there are provisions for uh, providing passes, especially to visit the hospitals. So as far as I know, um, but then the only drawback was that planning to visit a hospital, unless and until it was an emergency case, um, knowing your routines or vaccinations for children for that matter. So you needed to plan a day or two ahead. Um, so there was this fixed time to visit the offices to, who provided the passes. So you needed to get the pass a day or two beforehand. So then you were able to go to the hospital so that way children or anyone who needed vaccination or medical treatment, they got it. And as far as in the rural areas, there is still the primary uh, healthcare centers. So their vaccination routines, I don't think were hampered as such, even with the lockdown. All right, there's a question that just came through um, on the chat. Uh, I find this very interesting. Could each panelist, of course, if, if you are, you know, if you don't have anything to say about it, that's okay too. Could each panelist comment on the preconditions that their countries had for the success of the policy interventions? Um, I can take this one. Well, I feel like um, for, for China, the success in um, Fengsheng Hospital is that it already have like the large facilities, public facilities there. And um, that is really essential for, um, for, for building up like um, facilities within a very short amount of time. I think the, the, the largest um, Fengsheng Shelter Hospital was ready within 29 hours. And that cannot be done if we're building from, from zero. So um, I think that's some precondition to consider. All right, thanks Ruby, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and absolutely agreed, yeah. If, if you don't have those facilities, those measures, those resources, it's very hard to start from scratch. Um, and we've seen this with so many countries around the world in their responses to um, this pandemic one being you know the us as well like there were um hospitals built in the park within like two days and that's crazy but that's how countries have formed their responses for hopefully not but for future events like this well it's been amazing having all of you um from our panelists to our attendees thanks so much for tuning in and being here with us tonight um, once again, uh, this was a collaborative effort uh, from the Wagner Health Network and the Wagner International Student Society. I'm on the board of WIS, uh, which is International Student Society at Wagner, and we hope to bring you more of these webinars and fireside chats um, in the future. As um, Before you leave, as a reminder, please follow our listservs in the chat box um, and follow us on Instagram to know more about our future events and our announcements.